Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. We are two passionate movie lovers who love talking about movies passionately. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Sword of Trust is over. It's buried from the history books by the deep state. What you are looking at yes. is a genuine relic. That supports the actual truth, which is the South mm-hmm. won the war. Okay. The South won the war? That's right. This is something it's, you want to keep under your hat till you're ready to Seems like pretty big news. The best way to do this is through concrete evidence. Is this antique roadshow for racists? Up to $50,000. God damn it. What's the deal? 70-30 sounds fair to me. Don't, please don't touch. I don't can't touch, touch the tag. tag. Don't touch the tag. Honey, 70-30, is it 70 for us? No. No deal. 30 for us. No deal. There's going to be other offers on this. Because the word's out. Word's out. Came here looking for something. Uh-huh. Heard you have it. Can we... Narrow it down a little? We're What's looking that? for a sword. All right. A sword. Why was that so hard? It wasn't hard. It wasn't hard. Why it did just... we have to take that route to get there? 30 seconds to get there. It, it wasn't that long. Let's just be on the same page. We're just trying to sell this thing for a lot of money, and that's that. Thanks. This is definitely how people die. 
I don't know who these people are. I don't know what they're capable of. We're in this together. Me, you, the two ladies. We just got to get that $40,000. I'm so hard right now. I can barely keep my mind Wait straight. Wait a minute. Are you using that word right? Down a country like this, wind up in a ditch dead. Nobody would ever find you. You spend a lot of time thinking, like, how can these people think like this? No, right? you're right, man. We're in the brain of that. Yeah, we're about to find out. Apparently, it's carpeted. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pete, have you heard about these membership plans we have over at The Next Reel? Membership plans? Tell me more. For just $1 a month, practically nothing, you can become a One Reeler member and get access to member channels over on Discord. But I'm already a member on Discord. Yeah, but you only get access to some of the channels. Okay, so what's on these member channels? Oh, you know that Saturday matinee show? The one that I get every Monday, where the hosts talk about news and new trailers and play movie-related games and challenge each other with their list of films related somehow to the films reviewed that week? That's the one. Members get access to the Show Talk channel, where they can vote on the lists each week. You mean there's a vote? I love voting. Mom always said, vote early, vote off. Now, if you bump your membership up to the two-reeler tier, which costs a measly $5 a month, it's practically the same you'd pay for one of those fancy coffee drinks, you get so much more. What more could there be? Well, two-reelers not only get everything the one-reelers get... That's a given. ...but they also get access to live streams to watch shows when they actually record or anytime thereafter. You mean I have to stop doing this in my bathrobe? Two Wheelers also get to be a part of a pre-show chat with hosts before every Filmboard episode. I like it, I like it. Two Wheelers get every show before regular listeners and without ads. You mean I don't have to sit through this? Count me in! But the best benefit of all, members get bonus member-only episodes. I love that. It's an exciting time to be alive. What can I say? So how do I sign up? It's easy. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. TheNextReel.com slash membership? TheNextReel.com slash membership. Access to member channels in Discord, early access to shows, access to live streams, and member bonus episodes. Sign up today. I worry I'm going to offend somebody with this movie, Andy. I worry do, you think Lynn, do you think Lynn offended people first? I think she didn't worry about it, for sure. I've been watching cast interviews about of her talking about this movie, and she, has, she suffers no fools. Let's just say that. It is delightful to watch her talk about this. I wanted to start with a question for you, though, personally, not related directly to the movie. Can you think of something that you believe that you're just sure no one else believes? That other people would say, oh, Andy, he believes that thing. He must be nuts. Uh, yes. What? I believe I can fly. <laughs> ah, and you just haven't, you just haven't figured it out yet? Right. I, exactly. I'm working on it in private, but I'm, I'm almost there. So glad you started talking about it on the podcast, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I I feel like mine is uh I is related to to yours not not flight but uh I do sometimes sometimes events encourage me to believe that I can read people's minds. <laughs> 
Well, you've uh, you have convinced me of that from all of these shows all these years. How does he know? How does he know? We are uh, we're talking about the only time the only the only time you've actively used it against me is when we were ranking two thousand one. That's the only time that I was like, I know he's using it against me, Andy. If I had that power. Why do you think Under the Jerry Moon is at the bottom of our list? I think you're using it to to throw me off. <laughs> <laughs> throw me off the trail. <laughs> we are talking about, uh, this is the last movie in our Lynn Shelton series. This is 2019's Sword of Trust. She goes back to basics, uh, her first truly improv film since Sister Sister, which we also talked about. And I uh, struggled with those movies a little bit more than her more scripted movies. And then we get sort of trust and she completely changes my worldview. Uh, what did you think of this film, Andy? I had a lot of fun with it. I, I think that they were playing with ideas um, and belief systems. And I I found them uh, doing a lot of just you know, kind of a fun exploration of the world of the South and the, the way people kind of latch onto things that, uh, you know, it, I don't know. I, I feel like it's very relevant today in the way that people buy into something because there is quote evidence out there in, in some way, shape or form. And I, I found it to be pretty funny and insightful also just about kind of human nature and even just the, you know, the whole idea of greed of, of just going along with it just to get money. Like, I think there's, there's a lot of things that speak to, uh, speak to today. And, uh, so I quite enjoyed it. Doesn't seem like you were as impacted by this one as, uh, outside in last week. Mm, no, but it's also just a very different type of film, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And there were a few things in it that I didn't connect with as well, uh, but largely I still had a lot of fun with this one. And certainly it would be an easy one to return to and rewatch. I could not agree more. I just showed the trailer to my kids. They can't wait to watch it. Of course, the only thing they're talking about is John Bass uh, and his enthusiasm in the pawn shop. I just we have to get that money and I'm so hard right now I can't even think straight and uh, are you sure you're using that right <laughs> like that has become a common I'm pretty uh, sure uh, I got to go into the other room I'm pretty sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh it it is a uh, a uh, uh, fantastic uh film I I feel like I I wanted to start with Mark Marin because he was you know I I just watched his two two of his comedy specials uh, the Netflix comedy specials and they were great I really I connect with Mark Marin's kind of comedy I uh, have listened to his podcast a, a bunch I'm, he's one of those where the format is so long that that sometimes I I subscribe for a long time and then I don't and I subscribe for a long time and then I don't uh, but I'm I am a, I call myself a Mark Marin fan of his comedy I am not as exposed to Marin as an actor, uh, you know, apart from seeing him in kind of uh, bit roles, smaller parts in other movies, um, you know, almost famous, right? Uh, sure, he's angry promoter and almost famous. So I was genuinely surprised at how well he did in this movie and frankly, how well he connected uh, or served as sort of that connecting tissue in Every scene he was in, like he just felt so natural and fluid and easy in every scene, no matter what he was doing. I just thought he was 
terrifically organic and fun to watch. I find he works better. Like he didn't completely work for me. And and if oh, there's an issue I had with film, it's Marin. Um, I like him so much in the in the bulk of the film when he's the the kind of cantankerous pawn shop owner who's yeah. kind of taking people for uh you know their wares at mm-hmm. at uh, low prices and totally lying to them about why he's giving them such little um, money. Like I just I really enjoyed that character. I totally agree the way that he had his relationship with uh, Nathaniel John Bass's character who worked with him like that pairing was so fantastic I loved everything that they did on screen together and I love the relationship they end up making with Mary and Cynthia as those two come into the story okay so it sounds like so far you're in you're on team Pete I for the most part where I start kind of not going along with Mel and the way that Mark Marin plays him is when we get into situations that are potentially dangerous because I, I start feeling like, well, he's not really, I'm not sensing anything from him. Like when he's in the room with uh, the kingpin and they're talking and that guy's threatening them with the toy room or killing them and stuff, I just didn't feel any sense of threat from Marin. And I, I, I couldn't tell if he just wasn't playing it well or or what, but I just didn't buy that as much. And so I buy him a lot more when he's the cantankerous person, but once he's in a scene where he's actually actively being confronted, that's where I kind of struggled with him more. Well, I think we need to separate that the the climax of the film. I think we need to separate kind of some Act 3 issues, because I, too, share some Act 3 issues um, that that I feel like I, I struggle with a little bit. Um but but I, you know, when I'm talking about my uh, adoration of Marin in this context, it really is the stuff that you like, like the the cantankerous yeah. pawn shop owner is really great. The adventure of like figuring out how much to to charge the when the when the representative from, you know, the the uh, uh, the believers shows up and he he's, you know, examining the sword like it's just fantastic work and really beautifully subtle comedy that i think he does really really well i love the setting i love everything about the pawn shop character um you know john bass is is another you know, great addition to this cast their partnership is truly funny and and i do like the way that it kind of unravels how their relationship got started when we get to the van and he talks about you know i asked him to to watch the shop and he's still here um you know, I think that's a, a really great moment. Um, uh, so I think there's just a lot to to really appreciate about what they what they did here. I think this whole ensemble is just great at, at what they do on screen. Just to heap more praise onto Marin, because I think that we we both must just have similar issues with the that kind of third act. Yeah. But the other element that I found really strong with Marin that I completely bought into and I I loved was the relationship story that he had with Deirdre played by Lynn Shelton and this when he relays the story of their kind of their past as they're all sitting in the back of the carpeted murder van <laughs> you know <laughs> I I really loved that story it was a really touching powerful story and how he got out of that the the heavy drugs and everything and how she's still there and the way the story resolves as he kind of finds a way to kind of make some semblance of peace. I, I was really touched. So there were elements that really worked for me the way that he worked in the story. I, it's just, yeah, it was just the 
pretty much the moments when he's being threatened that I never connected. But those moments of the of the real kind of that the drama. So it's the drama and the comedy work. It's just the I guess the fear and the horror that don't. <laughs> Okay, fear and horror. Don't check out. <laughs> yeah, Deirdre's part, it, it was a little bit confusing to me, and I wonder if that was another thing that might have been excised in the improv process, you know, because it felt a little bit loose ended. They introduced this amazing, like, heart-wrenching past relationship for Mel, and she's in it for just a bit as a junkie, and we're not. it's not even clear she's a junkie until we hear a lot of the backstory. Um, I thought it was pretty clear from her conversation. Pretty clear. Yeah, I guess yeah. it is pretty clear. She he he tells her pretty much what's going to happen. So, and there are a number of conversations I think in there, and with the the neighbor who runs the restaurant, um, you know, who comes into their store every now and again in the beginning. But it just felt like that. Like, was that character useful for the story, or was it just kind of stunty? That's a good question. I I don't think it helps the story in any way. I think it fleshes out Mel as a character, and I really enjoy the journey he takes on. I really enjoy his relationship with her and how it's portrayed in the film, especially the way that he's kind of closed the door to her. But then that conversation with uh, Mary and Cynthia, and they're like, have you told her you still love her? Which I thought was kind of interesting. It, it kind of came out of the blue the way that that line played, but it also, I, I bought that it hit him and the way that the film then ends where he comes back and now he's in this place where he's not going to get back to with her, but he is going to get her car fixed so that she can at least get around potentially for this job, buy her groceries. He almost knocks on the door, but he doesn't. He just leaves him there. I was like, okay, there's something interesting here. But it also felt like it was from a different movie. And I think that's yeah, your problem. Yeah. And I think yep. that ends up being my problem. I really liked it. It just didn't feel connected. It felt like it came out of outside in. Like it was tonally, it just felt like it was part of, you're right, part of a different movie. Uh. Yeah. 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 But I mean, I liked Shelton in that small yeah. role. Yeah. I like Shelton as an actor. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I do too. I just haven't seen her much. And, you know, I, I, I guess I'm okay with that because I, I, I think I enjoy just what she's doing story-wise. I don't necessarily need to see her acting. Yeah. Uh, so, well, let's talk about that, the ending, the, the sort of third act. Uh, as, as they go, they agree to go on their adventure, and uh, they follow, they get in the panel van. I really like the moment where they all show up and they, they, they manage to manipulate the representatives say, we're not going to get in your, what was that, at El Dorado or something. It doesn't have enough seats in it. And so you're going to, he says, I'm going to have to go get a new, get a new car. I have a new car. And he brings back this carpeted panel or this carpeted like moving truck right. and puts them all in the back of the moving truck. I thought that was a great bit, a, a great sort of comic moment. And then they, we have this scene of sincerity, which is, you know, it was a nice beat. It was slows us down in the movie. And I thought that was really charming. Then we get to the farm. I sort of feel like we enter Scooby-Doo resolution territory here. <laughs> Yes. Right. This is where I struggle that it it becomes 
it sort of leans so heavily on this sort of vaudevillian resolution that everything is a twist. Every character is uh, has a, a different motivation, like every principal sort of new bad guy we meet. Then we, we were at the kingpin and it turns out, <laughs> my goodness, he's just a rich guy trying to take these these artifacts off the the market uh, and doesn't believe any of it that the the south won the war at all um that 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 felt underwhelming to me that felt like structurally unresolved as much fun as i was having leading up to the movie i i got a sad trombone feeling in my heart at the end <laughs> and and i think maybe it goes to how it was performed i think maybe your your point is is right there like i i it got the i got the feeling suddenly that i'm i'm watching a live show at the groundlings and they're just trying to end a bit right it felt that way. And even when Hogjaws comes back in. Hogjaws, then, such an awesome name. First. Oh, it's a great name. Please. Great yeah. name. Um, well, obviously, they're having fun with the names. We've got Hogjaws, Kingpin, Screen Door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what was the bit but, when he says a Hogjaws? He says, uh, Mr. Jaws, Hog, Hog, Jaws. Yeah. Trying to figure out what his name really is. But when he comes in and is just like making them dance and stuff, I'm like, really? I mean, really? it just... I mean, it just, yeah, it, it hit a point where the comedy just kind of, yeah, it felt like they were doing improv and they were just trying to figure it out and they were just making it up as they went along, doing something that seemed kind of, oh, this will be funny. But it, it in the context of the story, I like, I didn't understand, like, why is Hogjaws now making them dance like, you know, a puppet and things like mm-hmm. that? Like, I just, I didn't, I, I stopped kind of buying into all of that and it kind of went into a little, kind of spiraled a little bit into kind of, Territory that wasn't as strong for the story that they had set up. Yeah, I I think that was my issue, too. I I felt like as great as their character relationships were that they sort of built over the first hour, it it all just kind of falls apart when uh, Nathaniel sort of comes to the door and says, where's the bathroom? And it just is this chaos that felt uh, just sort of, you know, I've seen it. I've been I've been around that that corner before and I felt like the rest of the movie was dealing with some things that were real that that were, in a funny way they were asking these questions of of each other and of us uh, as viewers you know just cuz I believe crazy things doesn't mean I'm crazy right and and sort of pushing those buttons in I think a, a really interesting way and and it is thanks to a really cool concept an idea from and a cast that is smart and capable of bringing some real heart and intelligence to those discussions through their comedy on screen and i really applaud that and i feel like the third act does not live up to what they what they started with that's frustrating it is i mean they're obviously having fun and honestly i don't mind the kingpin's take on the whole thing like yeah i was like okay i can it's actually kind of an interesting angle to take with that where this is his setup but i i kept going down this road as i was thinking about it more i'm like well all of the people he works with at least the two who come in to take hogjaws down into the toy room must be in on it with him so is Hogjaws the only one who isn't? Right. And so yeah, I, I, yeah. Yeah, I hit this point where I'm like, I, where's the line? And, you know, so I, I started struggling with all of that um, at, at the more I thought about it. And so that's 
that's why it gets frustrating for me. I, I just felt like they could have even ended it in a similar fashion, but not necessarily going down kind of that the the silly action ending that they seemed to decide upon. And that's yeah, it just made it frustrating. Yeah, me too. I I really love the relationship between Mary and Cynthia. I thought they were so I, I thought it was great the way they worked, the way they sort of worked into the story, right? They inherit this house and they find this sword. Um, they don't actually get the house because there was, uh, you know, the financial arrangements didn't work out that way, but they do get this sword. And the the sword is a beautiful Civil War era sword. And it is uh, in the the uh, letters of authenticity from her uncle or father or, or grandpappy. Her grandpappy uh, it says that um, this was a sword that was surrendered by Sherman to Lee. And, or was it Sheridan? <laughs> or Sher- Sheridan at, at Chupawoga, the Battle of... Chickenfoot. 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 And uh, that it, it clearly demonstrates uh, that the South won the war of Northern aggression. And it, you can see it in this picture right here, a picture which was hand-drawn. It was a painting. <laughs> that was supposedly the authenticity uh, of this um, of this particular artifact. And that becomes the sort of trust. And I, I the, their integration, the way they talk to each other, the way they work together, it's very clear that Michaela Watson, or Michaela Watkins and, uh, and Jillian uh, uh, Bell, Bell. Uh, they have a, a great relationship together and they've they've worked together in the past and it's just super clear that they they are experienced uh performers together i believed every bit of their relationship even as there were some you know kind of stereotypical tropes of a lesbian couple that kind of rear their rear its head um in in their relationship i still found them funny yeah i i did too i mean i really enjoyed them as a couple i bought it it always just kind of i don't know it just it played nicely i i really enjoyed the way all of that unfolded with their relationship with the story of how they met and all that the escape rooms that they're wanting to do like it just it all was it made for kind of a fun relationship between the two of them that uh i enjoyed i i it's and neither of them are people I've seen a lot. I know they're doing a lot of uh, movies and TV and stuff like that. Um, and they seem to pop up in a lot more bit parts and stuff. I missed Brittany runs a marathon, which I know uh, was a big thing for Jillian Bell as far as that, you know, yeah, that was where role. she just sort of blew up, right? That's where yeah, she that was started like, getting cast and everything. Exactly, and yeah. I, I mean, she was one of the producers on it too. So it's right. it's like, uh, but I mean, that was like very recent, like before that, and she started out in Bridesmaids, you know. I mean. Mm-hmm. And and but in all these little parts like the master and twenty two Jump Street and Inherit Bites and Goosebumps and the Angry Birds movie, so she's kind of all over the place now, which is uh, which is fun to see because I I really enjoy what she uh, like her presence. I just I enjoy what she's doing. And Michaela Watkins also. You said that they have worked together before. I I don't know as much of her, but when I look back, I'm like, oh well, sure, I saw her in in the backup plan she was in wanderlust so they carry a lot of presence and just the way that they perform together always made me believe their relationship so i i yeah. had a great time watching them it does get a little you know again I, I i start going into that territory toward the end i i think all my problems with the film really settle on everything at the farm that's where i constantly find issues with all sorts of things like you know even the fact that Mary and Mel 
Like none of them, the four of them had said, hey, let's lock down the story before we go into this so that we're telling the same thing. Like, why didn't they just have that conversation instead of still stumbling over the whole thing? And so a lot of things like that really frustrated me, but it doesn't mean I didn't enjoy the characters or their relationships. Let's let's talk about the improv stuff, because I think that's, you know, that has been the, a, a perennial refrain uh, for us in the films that we've talked about with Lynn Shelton. Um, what works, what doesn't, because this film was so heavily improvised on set. Because, I mean, this one, you did find out that they actually did improv on set. Absolutely. Yeah. Which I, you know, in the world of filmmaking, having been a line producer on films before, like it just stresses me out knowing that that's how people are going to do this. Like, okay, we've got, we've got a vague idea what we're going to shoot today. You know, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's hard to figure out, okay, well, what do you need? How many days are we going to kind of plan on this location? How many days do we need to have this location ready? How, what's, what props do we need? And if they're improving it, it becomes so much more challenging. I find it really interesting that, that they do it that way. It, but on, especially on low budgets, it just seems like such a tricky way to kind of jump into putting a story together. So I, there are times it works really well. I don't know when was improv and when wasn't. If there was any improv going on in the pawn shop or in the back of the van, like, I think that all works. There are things that pop up like that escape room thing that, that I'm like, it's, I, I liked the way that it came into the conversation and stuff. The, the challenge I have with improv, and this is, I think, where I end up finding a lot of my challenge with Shelton and her stories is that I think the, the, the power of great screenwriting is that it allows for opportunities to create these great setups and payoffs. And what happens oftentimes in improv is, is you start setting these things up that never pay off anywhere. It's just, it ends up just sitting there. And if it's not really there to help move the story forward or move a character forward or things like that, then, then why is it there? And that's where I start running into some of these challenges with it, because like, I loved the escape room bit, but then I was like, okay, is that going to come back into the story in some way? Like, what's the, what do we need to know about the fact that, that, you know, she's wanting to run an escape room is that going to help us later on in some capacity shouldn't that have been the third act some sort of mechanism to actually create an escape room yeah or something where yeah they're thinking like yeah like you would if you were in it yeah this is escape room we just have to use our skills exactly yeah and and when you set something like that up especially when you're going to a place that has the toy room in the basement and all this crazy stuff it's like i know it's yeah it, it ends up creating frustration for me when there is this level of improv in a script well this th- that is absolutely my experience and this was the surprise to me for this one because you know the the last two movies that were heavily improv and and this is it comes straight from Marin and Shelton in in an interview she did with Seattle Television she talks about how this is how she does her improv movies she comes with a big heavy treatment and they improv it together on set this was not the kind of thing where they they improv it in workshop and then document it like we talked about yeah. yesterday how it's normally done she really does get the actors working together and do and and shoot 12 hour days of them just doing their thing trying to get the beats across so there's a 50 page treatment and they know the general story beats that they need to get through but as Marin says walking into a scene in that pawn shop he said i never knew what i was going to get 
from my acting partners. I never knew what they were going to say to what I said. I knew we had we had to get from point A to point G and somewhere in between we had to drop all those all those beats that we needed to get through. And uh so they had a a 14-day shoot, 6 days on, 2 days off, 6 days on that were just very long days and they managed to lock this all down. Now, the problems I had with the the first two movies uh that that we watched uh in the series that were more heavily improv is they felt like they were um mechanical exercises of delivering beats that didn't make a lot of sense to me in order to get to the third act payoff, which I liked. This movie was exactly the opposite. They, it, I thought it was improved exceptionally well. I felt great uh, up into the farm. And then it falls apart because, as you say, there are so many opportunities for great payoffs that go unresolved. And so as I, I loved how these characters work together and deliver each other such wonderful uh, opportunities for play that felt authentic and sincere. And then it unraveled. This is kind of my experience with most movies that I hear are are improvised that it's great up until the point that you need payoff and the payoff doesn't work. It surprises me in hindsight that we didn't get that experience for those first two movies, because I, now that I know kind of how she works, um, I, I would have expected this writ large. And I mean, I think I did have some issues. I think we both did with your sister's sister, as far as the way that there wasn't the payoff that we were wanting yeah. with yeah. with it was the uh, wrong payoff with Duplass's character, right? Yeah. Like we yep. wanted yep. to see his character find that resolution that he needed, and it wasn't there. Yeah, you're right. And that is the big challenge with it. And I think the only way for me that that a, a film could successfully be improved is if they actually have the story. Like, okay, this is, this is the story we want to tell. And they know the ending. They know what the payoff is going to be, but then they improv their way there. And maybe that would be a better way. Although I, I guess that's my sense that they must have had a sense of the, the way that they were going to end this film. I, I feel like it. I mean, if they had essentially a, a 50 page treatment, that gets you all the way to the end. Yeah. Yeah. I just can't imagine them saying, okay, we're going to go to this farm and see what happens. No, you know? well, because, uh, well, yeah, see, they have to have the treatment so they know where the locations are. Right. So obviously, they have to have a good sense of of what the story is. So then I guess to that end, it's not even the improv that's not working. It's just the way that they wrote the resolution. It's just it, it ends up being a silly resolution. It does. And I, I wonder if that was their objective. I found nothing that says, you know, we really were shooting for madcap at the end yeah. of the movie, because that's what it kind of feels like. And, right. and I feel like that's the high jump, low ceiling collision that I'm having, right? That that it doesn't live up to where where the film started. And and that makes me sad because I genuinely enjoy my time with this movie. Um, and, and it's up to that last sort of 15 minutes that it just kind of falls apart. Yeah, it's frustrating. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't mean that it's not an interesting film. And I think there are interesting things that uh, that Shelton is doing here. Mm -hmm. I do. I think it's, uh, you know, this is, as we talked about last week, this is her stepping out of the Pacific Northwest. Here we are down in Alabama. I'm guessing they shot here because of tax incentives. I like I was like, well, maybe that's why they ended up coming to this part of the world. But it also just it it felt so natural in the in the type of story that she was telling here like it fit with the context of this story and i really enjoyed the way that it played and the way that it, it kind of felt like the, i don't know there's something about it that felt 
like authentic. And maybe it's just because they go to the farm, which felt like it could be somewhere down in, I think they said they went from Alabama to Tennessee. Yeah, they were in Tennessee. And, you know, I don't know. I, I guess it wasn't, it didn't strike me as fitting to the place as perhaps we were seeing in the Pacific Northwest. And maybe it's just because she didn't know how, she didn't know the area as well, because we really focus on the pawn shop and the farm. And those are really largely mm-hmm. the two areas that we spend time in. Still, I I do feel like it was nice to see her step out of her comfort zone. I think this film demonstrates just how she is improved, right? I, I mean, there's, there is le- legit tightness and competence demonstrated in this film that uh, I, I think is... Uh, it, to me, it feels very much like the the sort of merging of her experience with all of the the improvisational films and the scripted films. Like it, it just feels like a solid movie that allows us to talk about you know m- more of the stuff going on in the movie than you know sloppy technique or stuff that that doesn't connect as as well with us. And I really like that. Um, I like seeing her honestly. By now, I like seeing her get out of the Pacific Northwest uh, and and explore a different part of the country and and see how it feels um uh, you know it was nice to be introduced to uh part of this country even though it was as you say small like uh, there's a lot of texture that's delivered in the exterior shots of these strip malls uh and uh, where the pawn shop is and uh, i was a little bit frustrated that our tour across the south into tennessee was in a closed van <laughs> <laughs> yeah that felt tv uh, to me that felt sure very did. tv I, I wrote in my notes, I wrote, is this kind of a bottle episode? Like, <laughs> they, just need, <laughs> they need a lot of heart with a principal cast that's cheap with no set. And yeah. it's just uh, like, I, it, it, it did feel that way to me. I think it accomplished what it needed to accomplish. A- and there was, I, I think there was growth that w- in these characters as they work together that was ultimately unrealized by the Mad Capri at the end. And that, that was, that was frustrating. But I, I liked the place. Yeah. And maybe that's uh, the more I think about it, I'm like, yeah, I didn't really see much of it. And maybe it's just I I felt a sense of it, even though I didn't see a whole lot. Yeah. But as you say, I mean, uh, tax incentives go a long way. Yes, they do, especially in the indie world in which she's uh, back working again, even though it's not with the Duplass brothers again. She's kind of working on her own with her own uh, with her own producers producing herself. She's actually one of the producers on this film. Yeah. Uh, Cinematography. Yeah, new cinematographer again, Jason Oldak, who is largely was a camera operator, and this was his third attempt being a cinematographer. He'd only shot uh, two films before as the cinematographer, Five Star Day and Battle Scars, and um, not very close together. And so I, I don't know. I, I'm curious, uh, you know, kind of to know the direction of choices that she was making as far as kind of leaving her team behind that she had been working with before coming on with uh, Jason Oldak. The only connection that I can find remotely is Glow, which uh, Mark Maron had been um, a part of. So, yeah, that sure that sure feels like the connection, right? That that um, and I wonder how many how many other sort of crew connections came from his experience with Glow. Well, and, and, I mean, she she had directed some episodes of Glow, too. So she it's did. entirely yeah, possible right. they met while filming there and they just connected. I mean, it's right. who knows? Who knows? I just don't know. But I, I, I liked it. It was it was fine. It didn't strike me as anything like that. They were trying anything. And 
that's something that I've noticed with some of the films that she's done before. I, I feel like Outside In was the one I noticed the most with, even though Laggies was the biggest budget. Um, outside in, actually, they were playing with depth of field, and mm-hmm. it felt a little more like they were doing something unique with it. This one, in a way, it did feel very safe. It did feel very kind of low budget, quick. Let's just make it look right and make it and and move through it. Like it, it in a way, I guess there was kind of that that safe lighting TV sensibility about it. Again, perhaps going to the low budget improv style. I, I couldn't help but think about our, our commentary last week on, um, you know, talking about that depth of field and what they could have done. Let's just say exclusively even in that pawn shop to give us a sense of tone and texture of the place of the sword if they had tried some more ambitious camera operation. Uh, and yeah. playing with depth of field and playing with isolating focus and playing with all these kinds of things that that I think could have made it uh, really fun and visually interesting on top of being just straight up well performed. Yeah, I just I, I have a feeling and I mean, I've worked on productions that have to move really fast, you know, yeah. and one of the things that often is sidelined when you have to move really fast because your production schedule is so incredibly short is how how many options you can take to film different options different angles you know play around with it unless you're a director who really very specifically knows exactly i like i want to shoot it here and then i'm going to cut to this like he has kind of shot the whole film in their head as as you hear about certain directors when a director is more like well i just want to play around with it especially in an improv situation like this it doesn't allow for you to play with the cinematography. You don't have that time to say, okay, well, I definitely want to get this shot structured like this. So then I can then cut to that because you're improving. And I think, mm-hmm. I, I just don't think that the improv style really allows for you to uh, kind of plan that far ahead with your cinematography. And then you get films that just look pretty straightforward. It makes so much more sense to just at least say, okay, camera's going to be stable. Sound's going to be solid. Can you hear it? Can you see it? Then the actors get to do what they need to do. Exactly. Um, Right. Music. Interesting about the music. What'd you think of the guitar? Uh, Well, it it was Marin's music is what... (laughs) It uh, was Marin, yeah. Yeah, which I didn't realize until until seeing that credit. I'm like, oh, I didn't didn't know he played music. It fit. I, you know, I didn't think a whole lot of it. Uh, but I was like, you know, it kind of felt of the world. So I guess to that end, it was fine. He is a he's actually quite an accomplished guitar player. And at the end of his podcast, uh, WTF with Mark Marin, uh, he always picks up the guitar and noodles around on it um, at every episode. And um, obviously, at this point, uh, Shelton knows this about him um, and knows that he plays a guitar. He's very good, likes his his style. And she tells him this and he says, well, hey, you know, you can, I got 500 of these things just sitting on my shelf. So you can use as many of them as you want. So the guitar licks that are noodling around in this movie are all previously released on on his podcast, um, his, his tracks that he had otherwise already recorded. Interesting. Yeah, I think, and then it works and then fine, you see yeah. it when he picks up the guitar in the pawn shop. He's quite an able player, right? Like he clearly knows what he's doing. Yeah, I thought that was really fun. Does. Yeah, that was fun. You know, we I, we we should just mention briefly. Uh, Tyler Cook was the editor on this film. Mm-hmm. I think if there is somebody who really helps a film make any sense when it is an improv style, it is the editor. 
because potentially in an improv setting where they're just kind of filming a whole bunch of different takes trying to figure out what the scene is, the editor ends up being the one who really has to figure out what the story is and how to cut it together for it to make sense. So in just calling out Tyler Cook, I, I, I would guess that there was probably a bit of work for him as he was putting this film together. And, and also editor on Glow. And well, there one. you go. And yeah. Little Fires Everywhere. He went on to Little Fires with uh, Lynn. Interesting. But I, there, there were no, uh, it, this, that was the first, um, it looks first like that was the first yeah. work uh, for them together, but they, they went on to do much more. Yeah, yeah. For a little bit of time at any rate. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, yeah, I don't think we, I, I ran across his episode, uh, this is Marin's episode of uh, WTF. I I hadn't heard, I don't think, or made the connection of the whole story about her death. And uh, I, I, it's just so crushingly sad because they were, they were together and she had divorced her husband and, and they were living together. And, you know, she, she ended up saying, you know, Hey, I've got this fever. It won't go down. They go get a COVID test. It wasn't COVID. Um, it just got worse and worse. And eventually he finds her kind of in a, a delirious state. She passes out of the bathroom, bathroom floor. And that's the last time he sees her alive in, in their house. And so he had republished that episode, the first episode where he interviewed her on his show, uh, where I, I think you, you actually can hear him falling in love with her. And it's so sweet and so adorable. And of course, now it has his intro um, where he's just weeping through because he he released that episode, you know, two days after she died. And he's getting through this telling that story. Uh, I, I thought it was incredibly touching and, um, and, and worth listening to. And it was neat to kind of revisit that experience. Yeah, it's uh, it is tragic, really, what happened to Lynn, and just the fact that she really wasn't even aware of what was going on. It really right. was just something that all of a sudden just happened. And my understanding is they didn't even know there was an issue until kind of they they did the autopsy and discovered what it was that had that had yeah. uh, led to her death, which is just so so it, so sad. It was organ failure related to acute myeloid leukemia diagnosed yeah. after death. Jeez. You watched some of the Mark Marin comedy specials that she had directed. And yeah, I watched both obviously of them. She, she had you know, been involved in Glow, directing a few episodes, and he was involved in that show. So there, there was a number of times they had worked together over the course of their careers, having met early. I think he first interviewed her in like 2015. Is that right? On her, yeah, it was on his 2015. Podcast? Right. And so there, I think that there was a strong connection there. And so if anything... You know, I, I I like the fact that this film that we just talked about here, sort of trust, allowed for them to work together in a in a film in kind of in this capacity, so that we're able to kind of talk about it here on the show. Yeah. So uh, so to that end, I, I'm thrilled that for the final project they got to work together on, it was this. She called him her muse. Oh, isn't that sweet? That is very sweet. Mm. You're my muse, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> if i say i'm your mine does that does that defeat the purpose of muses <laughs> yeah it totally does totally does don't say that i'll just take it uh how to do an award season this wasn't a film that found a huge audience um you know and because of that as i said last week it didn't 
receive a lot of awards or nominations, and it, but it did have more than outside in. Four wins, four other nominations. At the Clotrudis Awards, it was nominated for Best Performance by an Ensemble Cast, but lost to Parasite. But I unfortunately, totally that's a that. whole made-up word, so nobody really knew what that was. <laughs> the Clotrudis Awards. The Clotrudis Society of Independent Film, a nonprofit organization that teaches audiences to view films actively. Right, it's an independent film yeah. award thing back in the East Coast, I think. At the Film Independent Spirit Awards, it was nominated for Best Editing, but lost to Uncut Gems. At the Gijon International Film Festival, Mark Marin won Best Actor, and Lynn Shelton won Best Screenplay. Oddly, it didn't, in the award list, it didn't credit her co-writer, Mike O'Brien. I don't know if there's a reason for that or yeah. not, but... Uh, he wasn't credited as part of the win for that. It was nominated for Best Film, but lost to Vitalina Varela. At the Indiana Film Journalists Association, Marin was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Adam Driver in Marriage Story. At the Sidewalk Film Festival, it won the Audience Choice Award for Best Narrative Feature. And at the Traverse City Film Festival, Lynn Shelton won for Best U.S. Fiction for this film. So, you know, it's a lot of the smaller film festival types of awards that it's winning. That speaks, I think, largely to the audience that uh, that found this film i think it's fantastic it, i think it's the same problem we talked about last week that uh if people don't see it <laughs> does it really yeah. exist how to do at the box office mm. shelton's final film was still in those micro budget numbers i can't be 100 percent sure of this but i did find a figure of five hundred fifty thousand dollars for the budget which is pretty much in today's dollars about the same amount of money like all of our others, this film did have a very limited release after premiering at South by Southwest on July 12th, 2019, opposite Crawl and Stuber. Sadly, this one never really found its audience, only earning 323000 at the box office. That puts the film at an adjusted loss per finished minute of $2,500. It's a shame because Shelton certainly creates stories with unique characters. It just always seemed difficult for really to get them in front of audiences. Ugh, makes me sad. Yeah, we should. Uh, I am so glad that we talked about it. And again, these last two movies of Shelton's have been really redemptive in terms of just why we did this series. I'm so glad to have been introduced to Shelton's work, and um, I'm I'm kind of sad it's over for now. <laughs> That's right. I think that uh, there is uh, there is talk about coming back to do more of her movies at some point. At some point, shall we take it to the mat? Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this fair show. Swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flick chart, and you'll be taken straight to uh, the sort of trust uh, film entry in the flick chart database uh, where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. All right. First up, we have Sword of Trust or Wall Street. Oh, I'd watch Sword of Trust. Easy. Yeah, I probably would too. Sword of Trust or Fargo. Fargo. It's a tricky block that we keep running into. Yeah. It is a tricky block. That's going to make me sad, but that's where we are. Fargo, for sure. Sword of Trust or the Maltese Falcon? Maltese, Maltese Falcon. Falcon. For me. Yeah. yeah. Sword of Trust or the Town? Hmm. Probably the Town. The Town for me. Yeah. Sword of Trust or Zero Grad? That's <laughs> good. Good Soviet. Um, <laughs> I would watch Sword of Trust first. I will too. Sort of trust or true romance. I will say true romance. Yeah, true romance. Sort of trust or being John Malkovich. 
Being John Malkovich. Being John Malkovich. Sort of Trust or Dolomite is my name. Sort of Trust. Oh, wow. Dolomite is my name for sure. I'll give it to you. Oh, that was easy. <laughs> sort of Trust or Gone Girl. Gone Girl. Gone Girl. Well, that puts Sort of Trust in spot 240 on our chart. 240 out of 514 films. That's about a 53%. Well, it's lower than mine. I didn't run into that Fargo block. How'd it do on your list? The Fargo block hurts. I did, uh, you know, it's better. I landed in spot 1290 out of 4651. That's about a 72% for me. Okay, so we're right about in the same place. It's 367 out of 1509, which puts it at a 76%. According to the algorithm, I should head over to letterbox.com slash the next reel, and I should make this a four-star film. And you know what, Andy? I'm going to do exactly that. Four stars and a heart for me. Four stars and a heart. For me, it's not quite there. It's three and a half. I, I really enjoy it. It's it's fun. It just, the ending kind of falls apart. So three and a half stars and a heart for me. All right. Well, I love the movie. I had a great time with it. Falls apart at the end. Glad we have Shelton. Really curious what we're going to do next. I know. This is exciting. We are... Ending this season with a series provided by Ben Lott, one of our listeners, who came up with the idea of a series called Spoiled, period. Rotten? Question mark? It's about films with twist endings. And the idea is, if you know the twist ending, if it's been spoiled for you, is the film just rotten or does it still hold up? So we are each coming to this. We are each bringing a surprise film. The other one does not know what our pick is. And we are going to review these two films, and we're going to see if uh, it was basically how well they hold up now that we know how it ends. Okay. How did you, were there any sorts of rules that you put forth as you were thinking about what your movie was going to be? And and we should say, we don't know each other's picks. That's right. It's just, we're about to announce them. Yeah. This is, this is exciting. I, uh, no, the only rule I had was I was trying to come up with a, a film that had a twist ending that um that i haven't rewatched since i first saw it or maybe i have but it's been a very long time and my recollection is that it held up or that it still holds up in my brain mm-hmm. and so i'm curious to think like as i rewatch it knowing the ending if it's going to work for me still that was really kind of the only rule that i set in place i think so i i also the only other thing i added was is it a, a like it feels like a movie that deserves to be talked about on in our catalog. Like it feels like it's it's a hole <laughs> mm, in our okay. in our catalog. Like I wanted to see the artwork for this movie on our website. That's my thing. So I'm going to guess yours then. You're doing the emoji movie, right? <laughs> <laughs> How did you know it was the poop emoji all along? That's right. Um, all right. So, all right. Are you ready? Should we do this? Are we going to do it at the same time? Or are we going to do on a like, We're guess gonna, the yeah. movie? What's the, what's the drill? Okay. Well, let's guess. Let's see if we can guess what it is. Okay. This can is you guess mine? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you. All right. You got to give me a few clues. Give me some clues. What, what year was yours? Year was 2000. 2000. And um, it has a twist ending. I would say 2000, and it is genuinely twisty, 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 from 
opening frame. Okay. I, I would say uh, it is a director we've certainly talked about before. Um, our, uh, there's a, a sort of a principal trio in the film, and two people in that trio uh, starred together in a massively uh, successful series, uh, sci- original science fiction series. And that's a lot. Well, it's not, let's see, it's not a beautiful mind because that was after 2000. I was just thinking of Paul Bettany. You said two of them had started together in a massive science fiction series. And so I went to Cinematography Vision. by Wally Pfister. Wally Pfister, mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan, 2000. You're right there, man. You're sitting on top of it. If only you could take a Polaroid of it and tell it not to believe your lies. So, Memento. Memento. Interesting. Okay. Was that, gosh, my brain says that was 99, but I think you're right. I think it is 2000. Well, I'm looking at it on IMDb. Yeah, then you're probably right. <laughs> okay. Memento. Okay. I, Memento. This is thrilling. Guy you know, Pierce, I, Carrie Ann Moss, Joe Pantoliano. I have the, uh, the DVD release of that that came out where Christopher Nolan, as a bonus feature, included an easter egg where you can actually have the film play in chronological order ah i I heard that that existed i never had that easter egg and i would love to watch that you know what i mean like that would be really interesting yeah i'm curious about that i i did watch it at some point and i just can't remember uh i can't remember it that is a it's a really interesting film because I you know we talk about twist endings I think because of the way the whole film is structured it it's sort of pre-tenet right yeah and um so you know knowing the ending doesn't necessarily imply that you understand the movie uh, so it's really fun to to sort of revisit this uh based on the short story that Jonathan Nolan wrote Memento Mori uh Christopher Nolan wrote the screenplay and directed the film so i'm very excited to talk about this one get it on the list is it ruined if you know the the gag about the film structure in the end that's the question. i can't wait i can't right. wait to talk about that one what do you got? All right, you ready for mine? Mine is yeah. a 2003 film. 2003, okay. James Mangold directed it. We like James Mangold. We've talked about him quite a bit. I think we've talked about him. We uh, Let's see. Didn't we do Logan? Was that a film board? I feel like we had so many other Wolverine movies, and <laughs> I yeah. don't remember if Logan, I don't think Logan ended up being one of them. So um, what was the he Wolverine, doing? But he did do the Wolverine, so we did talk about that one. There was was there a twist ending to walk the line? <laughs> I feel like we knew where that was going all along. What else did he do in the late nineties, early two thousands? I don't even remember. Girl interrupted. No, yeah, so that so was he, not two thousand three. So uh, cinematography, uh, feeding Papa Michael. I don't know if that's going to help you. Music by Alan Silvestri. If I say that. Uh, okay, I'm going to start naming some cast members, but I'm going to start low on the list. Okay. Okay. Jake Busey. Jake Busey. Yeah. John C. McGinley. Uh huh. Clea Duvall. Okay. Alfred Molina. John Hawks. Is it raining all the time? What is it's, it? It's they're in that. The uh, it's like in that hotel, and Ray Liotta is in it. And uh, Amanda Peet, Ray Liotta, John, John Cusack. Cusack. And what is it and called? If I tell you Pruitt Taylor Vince, does that clue you in? I, certainly, it should 
to the ending of it because or the the big twist at the end. Did you just spoil it for everybody? It is no, identity. But Prude Taylor, it is identity. <laughs> yes, identity. <laughs> It is raining all the time at this uh, Nevada it's motel. Oh, so rainy! And there are ten strangers who come together. They uh, they're all trying to figure out what why they're kind of stuck here at this uh, motel during this huge rainstorm, and then they're getting killed off one by one, and they're trying to figure out what the heck is happening and why. And, uh, you know, it's a film that I had so much fun with when it came out. I'm really curious to see how well it's going to hold up, uh, knowing the big twist at the end. You've seen it, right? Yes. What was the, they, I feel like, um, I made that joke. There, there was a movie, another movie at a motel, and uh, it just came out. It was a Netflix, and not just, it was a couple of years ago now, and it was very vibrant uh, marketing, and there was the whole thing behind the mirror. And do you remember what it was? Because uh, I feel like identity, I was I, I I loved it when I saw it the first time when it was identity. All I can think of is is uh, bad times at the El Royale, yeah, which also takes place at a at a kind of a hotel motel. Yeah, weird with mirrors, people behind the mirrors. But um, I'm I excited. Feel like to watch I, know I what haven't you're seen. About, yeah. I haven't seen Identity maybe since it came out. Yeah, so, so my memory of it is that we've we have it has come up in conversation and maybe in one of our Satmat games, uh, but it is so it feels a little bit more tip of the tongue than it probably should be. I'm I uh, love John Cusack. I think it's going to be fun to revisit this one. This is kind of toward the end of that period where John Cusack could carry a movie. <laughs> so yeah, he kind of stopped um, yeah. and ended up doing a lot of things that. I think he's just doing for the money, but I I'm thrilled. So this is going to be a fun one to revisit. So that'll be the final series for our season. Memento and identity. And then we take yeah. our July hiatus and we take a break. So we'll talk more about uh, what happens in July's uh, when we get closer to it. But for now, yes. next week, which one are we doing first? We should probably do which w- let's do them in chronological order. We should do memento and then identity 2000, okay. 2003. That sounds good. All right. Awake. Where am I? Some anonymous motel room. I guess I've already told you about my condition. Oh, well, only every time I see you. It's my memory. Amnesia. No, 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 no. It's different from that. I have no short-term memory. I know who I am. I know all about myself. I just... Since my injury, I can't make new memories. Everything fades. I've told you this before, haven't I? What's the last thing... That you do remember. My wife. Dying. My wife deserves vengeance. Doesn't make any difference whether I know about it. Just because there are things I don't remember doesn't make my actions meaningless. All right. Well, all of you members, thank you so much for your support. As a reminder, we do have our monthly member bonus episode. Uh, the Big Heat just came out a few weeks ago, and we're going to be doing Naked Lunch as our June member bonus episode from our director, David Cronenberg series. And we are already running polls by the time this comes out in our uh, Discord group for our July hiatus uh, member bonus that we're still going to drop during the hiatus for everybody. So we'll still get something in there along with some flick chart re-ranking so that people can kind of have something to listen to before uh, we return in August. 
uh, you know, we've done a lot of movies as these as these member bonus episodes. They're a lot of fun to do, and it's just a great way to say thank you to all of you who are supporting the show, and uh, we appreciate it. And for those of you who are interested, if you go to thenextreel.com slash membership, you can learn about the different ways you can support by becoming a one-reeler or a two-reeler. One-reelers uh, get to go vote in our Saturday matinee polls, which are really fun. You get to choose the topic that we build our lists around, uh, and we'll be doing it for this very movie uh, this week. Uh, don't forget to do the stuff you're supposed to do with podcasts. Rate, review, subscribe, and of course, listen. Uh, but, uh, you know, the thing we we haven't done a great job of doing over the past is just reminding you that the best way you can help us uh, is to... Tell your favorite movie lover about this show. Uh, introduce them to the Next Reel, the Next Reel family of podcasts, and, and let them know there are people who really love movies and uh, love talking about movies and that uh, we produce an awful lot of shows. Uh, hopefully there's something in here that we do that your favorite movie lover would also connect with. So uh, thank you, everybody. And speaking of producing an awful lot of movies... If you are subscribed to this podcast feed, we remember, this is the Next Real podcast feed. We've As we've expanded and we've been doing a lot more shows, all of our shows are still in this feed. But if you really just want to focus on just the film board episodes or the trailer rewind episodes, we now have feeds for all of those individually in, in your uh, podcatcher. You just search for it and you can just subscribe to those individual shows if you're just overwhelmed by the number of shows we are cranking out. So we're trying to make that easy for you. So absolutely feel free to hop in and uh, you know subscribe to whichever ones make the most sense for your listening habits. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Mm. Again, Letterboxd brings us some folks who disagree with us. Oh, they don't like it. They a sure lot of people don't. don't. Like it. Uh, yeah, they don't. Um, I, I got a half star from Madeline. Oh, Madeline. What's Madeline have to say? Well, Madeline says, I get what it was going for, but for me personally, it fell so flat that it not it and did not deliver. There was not a stretch of this longer than 10 minutes that was entertaining enough for me to avoid grabbing my phone. As I was watching it, I was wondering, is anything going to happen? Will it get funny? The humor is supposed to be subtle and kind of dry. And yeah, it could be funny, but it's not. And here's here's the money line. This is what allows Madeline to transcend these other reviewers. I feel like I wouldn't be friends with someone if they told me they'd recommend this movie. <laughs> which which maybe is taking relationship with film a, a, just a skosh far. But I get it. I get feeling strongly about movies. I have unpopular opinions about movies, so I get it. What, what's right. your one star? I've got a one star by Ryan Bradley who says... Imagine a hero's quest where the quest is entirely pointless, and you'd still have a better plot than this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well played. Thanks, Letterboxd. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash 
Audible. It's the way to go. All right, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season 10, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. 10 seasons of this. I should be a pro by now. First up, David Fincher. This was a member bonus. Gone Girl. Aquatic Killers. Mm, Certainly not Tentacles. (laughs) Oh, In the Heart of the Sea. Nice. Here's another member bonus. John le Carre. Uh, uh, The Russia House. I love that score so much. Here's a tough one. Soviet science fiction. Ooh, uh, I have no idea. All of them? Not quite. Just Dead Mountaineers Hotel. Awesome. We've covered lots of great movies that started out as books, plays, even comics. Sources like Ivanhoe, Conan the Barbarian, Eight Million Ways to Die, The Hot Rock, Born on the Fourth of July, American Psycho, The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, The Mist, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.